and welcome to Primary Sources, a featured production of Radio Cows. Here on Primary Sources, we focus on people who are making a difference in Little Rock and Arkansas. Some you might have heard of and some you haven't heard of, but probably want to know about. Check out cows.org slash podcasts for a free podcast of Primary Sources interviews. Hello once again, everyone. I am Matt DeCampbell, and this is Primary Sources, a podcast of the Central Arkansas Library System, a continuing series where we talk to various Central Arkansans who are renowned for one thing or another, depending on their field, depending on their lives. And today we've got someone who's had a very interesting life, particularly in the last uh few months in the last few years, and that's Miss Kara Brookins. Welcome aboard. Thanks. It's great to be here. So you are first and foremost, obviously, an author, although you've also become a bit of a contractor in the past <laughs> years, and we'll, and we'll get to all that. But but let's start, let's go backwards and start at the, you know, your childhood, were you raised locally, what, what inspired you, what got you on your path? Sure. I wasn't raised locally. I actually grew up in Tomo, Wisconsin, so a bit of a transplant. I did move to Arkansas when I was 14 and graduated from high school in Searcy. Uh, since then, though, have moved and lived all over the country, but keep coming back here. So <laughs> I, I think it's it feels very much like home. And I'm a transplant as well. I grew up in Seattle before I came down here. So I knew I, it wasn't Arkansas in your voice. Yeah, yeah. Nor do you. Nor although it'll slip in. It does. It Once you become an Arkansan, <laughs> you find that you take home the y'alls and the fixins. And except if I try to put it on, you know, like yes. every now and then you sort of wish you could affect a southern drawl. I cannot do it then. Yeah. Completely. I can only do it when I'm talking to someone else who, who has, has one. Right, yes. Right. And Which you it, just. It rarely serves you then. The only time it would serve you is if you're talking to people who don't have it. Right. And then, and then you just can't do it. But almost subconsciously, they just kind of, you just kind of pick up on what they're saying and it, and it affects your own voice. So in a good stuff. way. So you graduated from high school down here. I did. And then sought to get away again immediately or? I, well, I lived in D.C. for a while. I lived down on the Gulf Coast. Um, but my mother lived here in Arkansas, so I kept coming back uh, for that to bring my kids closer to her. And way back from the time I was in Wisconsin, you know, storytelling was a huge part of my life, and that followed me here to Arkansas and everywhere that I went. So, you know, th- that strain remained no matter where I lived and, uh, and, and eventually became the thing I wanted most in the world. So what kept you moving so many times? Um, it was a variety of things from work to I got married right out of high school and, and moved to D.C. And then, of course, I kept coming back for my mom. So it was a variety of things. And at what point was it during when did you start writing? I guess it just should be the question straight up. I started writing. I think the first book was published in 2003 and I wrote it a couple of years before that. So, you know, it, and it was for my kids. I was telling a story to my kids, and that's how I started. And at that time, I didn't know any writers. I had never met an author. And I just thought publishing houses must just be dying for people to send them stories <laughs> because there aren't any authors out there. Right. Certainly, if I'm not running into them, neither is anyone else. Of course so what not. a silly thing. So I wrote this book, and I put the whole manuscript in an envelope and mailed it to a publisher in New York. And they called me in a couple of weeks, and they were like, hey, we like your book. We'd like to publish it. So I thought, well, that's easy. Um, it was never that easy again. <laughs> of course, of course not. But but even before you got into it as a profession, I mean, did you write a lot as a kid? Did you? I didn't write. I read voraciously. Mm-hmm. And I was constantly listening to stories and telling stories. I wasn't a super confident writer because my spelling was atrocious and my handwriting was worse. So it really wasn't until I became more and more involved in computers that I gained the confidence that I needed for writing, which is such a silly thing, right? Because I think that I was a good storyteller and that I, it would have served me well to start writing sooner. Um, but there was that, that bit of shame over what it looked like. <laughs> so you you had concepts and ideas bouncing around in your head when you were always. younger, but you just never put them down to paper. Always. because and I was always telling stories right. um, as well as listening to them, You know, asking my parents for stories, asking my grandparents for stories, the same ones over and over again. What did your parents do? Um, My mom was a homemaker Mm -hmm. who finished college when I was in high school and became a clinical um, therapist. Oh, great. So she did mental health work uh, for the chronically mentally ill. And my dad worked in the lab of a plastic factory in Wisconsin. 
So you're not in the family business. I'm no. not, no. It, although both of my parents read constantly, especially my dad, uh, stacks of books from the library. So what is it like? Obviously, you said it was easy the first time. But being an author, trying to find the magic, trying to find the niche. I mean, I, I've been to some local author events where I've seen you right. before. And, you know, they felt like everyone was trying to find, like, the next YA series. You know, they wanted to be the next Hunger Games. They wanted to be the next Harry Potter. They wanted to be the next one of those. Do, do you think a lot of authors trying to start out, do they write what they really want to write? Or do they write what they think the market wants right now? I think there's such a mix in that. It's just not the type of profession where you can do that sort of predictive plan when you write. There are some really smart business moves that you can make as an author. Um, and I mostly learned them by doing the opposite and going, oh, that was a bad idea. Um, for example, writing it across a bunch of genres really handicaps you when you're trying to market. Um, writing to a bunch of different age groups, which I think I've written all of them, handicaps you when you're trying to market. You know, so there are, and of course I have fiction as well as nonfiction. So, you know, those types of, of broad things, um, you, you have a hard time marketing that. Um, but I do think that most authors ultimately write what what touches them, what they want to write. And even if they started out trying to design something, you honestly cannot stick with it for that long. The amount of time and energy that you have to stick into a book for no money. I mean, you're doing this for free until you get paid. It's all on spec. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So trying to stick with something that you're just pulling because you think it might be popular, it just I just don't think it works. Um, I, I think that rarely can you put the heart and soul into it that you need to write something that you're proud of, to write something that you'll stick with. So by design or, or by accident, I think we all ultimately end up writing something that touches us. So it sounds like that you you do enjoy writing in the atmosphere that is the more insecure as opposed to saying, Kara, we need a book from you. You know, you've got this this deal with us. We need this book by X date. Right. Um, no, I think that I think that that's a great way to write. We need it by X date because generally then you're paid ahead of time. Oh, that, that helps. So, yes. Right. It's, you know, we're not all doing this for the money, but certainly we have to eat and live. So the money is essential. And if you know that there's already support behind a book, it's it's easier to bolster yourself on those tough days and to sit your, yourself down and make yourself write it on the mm. days when you don't want to write. Um, so, yeah, I can do that. And I also like to... to dip in and write the silly things um, and not necessarily you know that might mean it's a suspense or psychological thriller um, but silly from the standpoint of it might not be exactly what my agent wants me to write um, but I started very much writing for my kids mm -hmm. you know telling them stories so as they grew up I started writing things that were for older and older people until now I'm finally writing really exclusively for adults and I love that like that's the space I want to be in now um, and, and tell us about your kids, because we've referred to them and haven't right, said anything about them. Right. Yet. I have four kids, um, and they're fantastic. Now they are 26, 24, 20, and 11. Um, bold, courageous people who are doing doing some amazing things, running their own businesses. Mm -hmm. um, they have also moved around the country to Alaska, to Denver, to L.A., and um, and they're, they're pretty incredible. So you write seven books. And then there's this eighth book. Where did you first feel like this is where your next project was going to go? I'm, I'm, I'm building this up slowly as though I were building a house, maybe. <laughs> well, fiction was always my goal. Mm -hmm. I had never intended to write nonfiction. I had written nonfiction for the Democrat Gazette, you know, for the paper. Sure. I had never intended to write a book that was nonfiction. Um, it wasn't until I was finished with the project that the book is about until we had finished building a house and that I kept running into other people who had gone through some really difficult times in their life and while they had left or recovered from them they were having trouble taking this next big step to do something different with their lives so they're sort of at this launching point and couldn't make this leap and I would start to tell my story and, you know, how my kids and I got out of this situation and how sometimes doing something insanely big and unlikely is exactly what you need. You know, forget all those little steps. Mm -hmm. And I would see this transformation when I talked to people and when I did motivational speaking that I would see this change that my story 
was making in other people. And I thought, oh, darn it, I'm going to have to write this, Mm -hmm. which was something I, it was tough. It was really tough to get that personal and to tell your own story. Um, In fact, I I worked on it for six years before I found, or rather gained the courage, you know, to tell it the way that it needed to be told. So then let's back up, what was that, about nine, ten years ago that it started? So why did you decide to build a house? Well, I had been in a really difficult domestic violence situation. I had um, first married a man who, shortly after we married, uh, developed a very severe form of paranoid schizophrenia, full-blown. My kids and I left that situation, but he continued to torment us for the next decade. So naturally, I was looking for some sort of security and safety. And I met a man who was physically strong and protective, and I thought, oh, this is just what I need, and got married. And he ended up being very abusive, physically violent. So by the time we left that and were on our own, you cannot imagine how broken and small we felt. We had been um, afraid, you know, for, for way more than a decade. And my kids were getting older. They were The oldest two were 17 and 15. And I had this sense of urgency that if I didn't do something and if it wasn't big, I would lose them. They were going to move off into the world feeling that small. So we also needed a place to live. And so it was necessity is the mother of invention, right? It was that Absolutely. that's why that's what is that what settled you on that? Or is that something you had thought about just before in previous iterations of your life? No, or? I had not really ever thought I'm going to build my own house someday. Never. No, it was certainly need. No. Could we have bought something very small with the same amount of money and piled up bunk beds in the corners? Of course we could have. Um, but that would have been a retreat. You know, that would have been more small living and more of the same example. And I wanted something bigger. And my kids honestly just wanted their own rooms. Well, I was going to say, how on board <laughs> were they from, from step one? It's crazy how on board they were. And now when I evaluate it, I think, well, of course. I mean, they were kids. They thought their mother was sane with this idea, mm-hmm. you know? They thought, well, of course their mother was going to lead them someplace that was, was safe and good. Um, but I, I also think that this was the first time that they had the opportunity to take action. They had been in the situation where they were paralyzed and tiptoeing through their lives, and there was nothing they could physically do to give themselves a better life until this. So you, when you were going through the construction project, were you taking, you know, you said you love writing. So were you taking any notes about it? Were you kind of putting together, like even for your kids, like a, like a journal or a diary of the experience or anything like that? I wish I had. Um, <laughs> no. First of all, there was no time. We worked 19-hour days. Uh, what I do have are emails that I sent to family, um, my dad in Wisconsin and an aunt in Tennessee, and I would send them sort Updates. of progress emails. Sure. And they sound insane when I read them now, the number of things that we were trying to do in a single week. and um, But I had that to refer back to with the book, but I had never planned to write it. It wasn't something we were proud of. Uh, we were ashamed, very ashamed, that we were in a position where building our own shelter was a good option, um, or where that felt like a sane option. Mm-hmm. You know, we were we were aware that it was extreme. It was we didn't bring people by to see it. We didn't tell I didn't tell my coworkers. My coworkers knew I was building a house, but of course they assumed that was in the way of pointing and having contractors do it. Mm-hmm. You know, not in actually building it. So no, uh, we didn't chronicle it. In fact, we didn't take photos of building the house. The only photos we have were taken when either my mom or my dad visited and took photos. If if one of my kids, of course, we didn't have smartphones then. Sure. You know, I had sure. a BlackBerry without a camera because this was 2008. And if one of my kids would have brought our nice digital camera to the job site and stood around taking pictures, like, they would have been in trouble because all hands on deck, we have work to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, you rarely have a good hair day out on a job site. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. But thank goodness my parents saw past that, and and they both took pictures. So we have those of us out there. But it, you know, it was it was a long time. In fact, the first time I ever considered writing it, I was at a writers' conference, and another writer who has since passed away was was in the middle of a conversation, and he said, "Sometimes ignorance takes the place of courage." And we were just finishing our house. And I was like, oh, my gosh, are you ever right? <laughs> you know? We leapt into this project with so much ignorance. Um, and I told him, you know, this is what we're just finishing doing. And we were almost ready to move in at that point. 
And he said, I'll call my agent on Monday. You're going to write this book. And I was like, no, I'm not. Um, but that was the first idea of, you know, let's let's really do this. Of course, like I said, I had talked to other people, but that was the first sort of wiggle of, of it, it could help other people. At that point, then, you hadn't done what you talked about with motivational speaking and that kind of stuff. That was all after the book right. came out. That was all after building the house. Um, I had done a lot of speaking about writing prior to sure. that. Uh, but not until after we finished building the house. Honestly, I didn't have the courage. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was very much an introvert, very much a shy person. I had been beaten down pretty hard for a lot of years. So, yeah, motivational speaking had to come after I gained the courage by building the house. Okay. So you get the deal to publish the book. I mean, did it happen that quickly after that after, conversation? After I finished it. Oh, no, no. I, okay. That was just the, the the first conversation where I made contact with the first agent. Um, it was six years of writing various, more than a dozen versions. Um, in the beginning, they were very hallmark. They were mm. very, oh, my kids and I built a house. Um, and the questions from editors were always, why would you do this? Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to tell why, because why hurt? Mm-hmm. You know, and why was really private and why was really shameful. And it took me six years of writing different versions to finally think, okay, I can own this. Like, this is my real history. And if I can't own this history, how can I possibly tell someone else to own theirs and move on? And once I did finish the version that I, I finally called final, um, I, I got a, a new agent. Um, prior to that, I was selling my books, my fiction books, all directly to editors without an agent. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually got my very first agent, and she did sell it very quickly. It went to auction and, and sold very quickly. And when did it first publish? Um, it just came out in January. So January, January of 27, yeah, of this year. Of 2017. Yes. The story sort of preceded it in the media. Okay. Well, then then how did that happen? That happened in the most ridiculous way, because when you have a book that sells at auction and it's expected to do well, the publishers are fantastic. St. Martin's Press is my my publisher, and they sent out, you know, hundreds of books to the media, you know, looking for interviews and those sorts of things. And we had a couple of magazine things and stuff, but um, no great, no great grabs like we were hoping for. Mm -hmm. So I sent an email at midnight to a local radio station and that next morning, they said, um, we're on our way to your house, and we'd like to do a story. And I said, give me time to get there. You're going to beat me there. <laughs> and, um, and they aired a story here that they put in a, a repository for other news stations to pull from mm -hmm. around the country. Mm -hmm. um, so it was pulled by almost every station in the country. Um, and so by the next day, it had hit other countries. And it, there were more than 1,000 stories written within a, just a couple of weeks here in the U.S., um, and then 75 countries. So I spent three weeks literally nonstop uh, doing interviews and things. It's crazy. How much publicity had you ever done or experienced with the previous seven books? Um, only stuff I did myself, like me contacting other podcasts or other writers mm -hmm. and sort of trading blogs and that sort of thing. Uh, a few radio shows and stuff like that. N nothing by comparison. Certainly not the Today Show or talk shows or things like that. And what was the point? where you kind of had to stop and have a moment, you know what I mean? Where you realized how much this was getting I might still wild. be waiting for that point Oh, <laughs> okay. I can stop. Um, but I mean, just where you realized that this was just how big this potentially was going to be. Where I realized how big it was is we did, the show aired, um, the, the first television interview aired like at six o'clock in the evening on local television. The next morning at 7 a.m., I got a call from a radio station who they had gotten my number in this really convoluted way and just called me. And while I was talking to them, my office phone was ringing and CNN was calling my office phone. And then um, the Today Show was emailing me. And it was just like it was that fast. Mm -hmm. It was by the time I woke up the next morning, everything was coming in. And I was literally saying, give me 30 minutes to drive home and I put people on my calendar, and they literally slotted people in every 30 minutes to an hour um, for three weeks straight, very little sleep, because I did shows all over the world, you right. know, Poland and Italy and Turkey. and um, So I would know that I either had to answer a video call or a phone call, and I wouldn't even know who I was talking to because there wasn't time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was pretty nuts. Did it uh, wear on you? Because you – I know that a lot of times when you're doing – 
uh, publicity tours, yeah. you get the same four questions oh, yes. every time. And did you... And you get really excited when somebody asks you something new. Right, right. <laughs> Which is what I'm trying to do as well. Right, right. Um, but but did, did it wear you down to a point where you're like, I can't keep doing this? There were some times, with, particularly with long interviews, and where it's like my eighth interview of the day, I'm like... I don't even know if I've already said this to this person. Like, have I given this answer or sort of answer to one of the questions they asked me? And I wouldn't even know. Um, or I hadn't had time to eat. You know, it's like it's been eight hours since I've eaten anything and my kids are bringing me hot tea to try to keep my voice going. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of times that it that it did. And I'd just be like, I need I need a break. Um, and I did cancel a couple of appointments and say, like, I am going to get a massage. Yeah. Like, we have to get through this. I need the, yeah. yeah. Like, I just need this. Some mental health time in the middle of right, all of this. Right, right. And I was, I tried to get a lot more conscious about scheduling that and about scheduling sleep, especially because the middle of the night calls are super early morning calls and stuff. And all of this has happened within about six weeks of us taping right. this podcast. Right, So what's next? Next? Oh, Certainly more fiction books is what I keep saying, but I don't know when I'm going to find the time for that. But what's next with what's happening with With, Rise? With Rise, the next thing will be TV, I think. Um, We've had a lot of interest from some different, you know, television series, particularly unscripted formatted shows, not in the follow you around with a camera docuseries format, uh, but in the hosted format uh, so that. Uh, the kids and I and one or more of the kids and I will be hosting a show and helping other people who are trying to do something similar, who are trying to rebuild their lives in some way by physically doing something. Um, So this goes out to networks. We have a a shopping agreement we're working on right now with a, a big production company. So that will go out to networks in the next couple of weeks. And also uh, talking with a ton of studios for a feature film. So that's a longer process, uh, you know, that can take years and years, but trying to get some talent and, you know, a specific studio attached early. So, you know, especially if you can get an A-list talent attached early, it really, mm-hmm. really increases your chances of actually ever seeing the movie. And I actually sometimes think it would be fine with me if we could get it optioned for like the next 20 years, but I would never actually have to watch it. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's tough. It can be. That's a tough thing. I can't imagine. It can be watching yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And not necessarily watching yourself during the best time of your life, but yeah. the toughest times. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll see how that goes. And it's fascinating because yeah, I'm I'm not a television watcher. In fact, we went out and bought an antenna so that we could watch ourselves on the Today Show because we didn't we didn't watch that sort of thing. So it's such a, such a new way to think, but brainstorming different angles on a film of your own life yeah. is is and it can go in so many different directions, which I never imagined. Um, so it's it's been a fascinating thing. And that's, I guess, one of the reasons why I ask. You know, have you had that moment where you're stopped to think what a moment you're having in that first of the year? I mean, you know, New Year's comes and we're done with 2016, which was not the best of years overall right. for a lot of people. And you're like, OK, great. My book's coming out. And now we're only two months from that. And you've got to be thinking like, so who's going to play me in a movie about my life? I know. And we've actually had actresses, you know, contact and say, I'd like to attach myself to this. So you have to really like watch things that they've done and consider them as you. What a strange thing. I can imagine. I can yeah. only imagine. And I know just uh, about a week ago, I was talking to my lit agent and my film agent. We were doing a conference call. And, you know, they were like, so, you know, have you have you settled in? Kind of like what you're asking me. Have you settled in? Are you kind of get?" And I was like, you know, I'm still feeling like a month or two from now, I need to go sit on top of a mountain somewhere and just look at my calendar and feel the emotion over the the high level of people that I was able to talk to, but not enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You know, not truly enjoy, like, isn't it cool that you got to talk to this person or this talk show host or all of these different people? Um, and they said, Kara, you do realize you are, like, scheduling time on your calendar for emotion. Like, let's ske- let's pencil some time in to have some feelings about all this stuff that has happened. That, that kind of suggests you might be too busy. Well, plus, <laughs> it's your emotions that brought you to this point that that brought you on this journey and right. brought you through that project and brought you to write about but it. But you truly have to sort of turn it off yeah. in order to manage that level of discussion with that many different people um, and to pull yourself away from it and deal with it from a business standpoint. And you're making high level business decisions 
so you have to, you have to step back from your own life and not feel the personal side of it. And from your kids' lives, you're making b- business decisions that affect your kids in an enormous way, um, which changes the stakes. Mm-hmm. Especially when I have one who's 11. My youngest is just 11. Right. Now the oldest three are adults. Mm-hmm. But but the little guy. So, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of pressure. As you think, if this is even something you've had time to think about yet, but as you move toward the potential of a film, mm-hmm. how do you think you'll have the control that you want or the influence that you want to make sure the story stays pure to your experience? I think that they will give me the illusion, just knowing what I know about the film industry so mm-hmm. far, they will give me the illusion that I'm going to have a tremendous amount of control very early on and that will dissipate as directors get involved and as talent is attached. Studio executives. Exactly, exactly. So I'm I'm okay with that. I'm not a person who feels like a, a, a film has to perfectly mirror a book. I would like it to stay true to our experience. Mm-hmm. You know, that's essential. And I would like it to say, stay true to our characters. You know, that the nature of each of us is identifiable and positive, mm-hmm. right? Because it's how you're seen for the rest of your life. Right. Um, but I don't feel like I need an enormous amount of control because it's not my industry. I am not a filmmaker. I am not a screenplay writer. So I'm fine with, with giving some of that control away. Um, and also because I am aware that I cannot do everything. There are there are too many things. And if I can maintain some control over a TV series in which I appear as myself, yeah, I get to, I get to have thing more control over that. Mm-hmm. So um, I feel like that's where I have to I have to allow myself to give some away and find other ways that I can can rein it in. And I wonder, too, if if the movie does shift a little bit you know, away from being incredibly focused, you know, replica of what you went through, mm-hmm. w- that might make it easier for you to to watch someday. Well, that's exactly true. And I actually I, t- I talked about my oldest daughter with that because I've always said, gosh, I don't know how I'd watch this. And she's like, think how much they're going to get wrong. Or how much, you know, either intentionally or accidentally. And we are going to be, like, irritated with parts of it. We're going to be laughing at parts of it. Like, oh, my gosh, you know, I wish it were that way. Mm -hmm. Or thank goodness it wasn't. And she's like, so I think we'll be able to remove ourselves from it. And that's potentially true. And I've read interviews over time with – because I do watch a lot of movies and I love a lot of movies. But you talk – they talk to people who have had movies made about their lives. Uh And that some of the things that were – fictionalized in the movie and not necessarily for you know bad reasons or right. but like like what we talked about for through all the process yeah, yeah. but when people meet them now that's the first perception they of have of them <laughs> so you know is that something that concerns you or do you think that it it's just going to be another you know outlet for you to to help get your story out and to, and to connect with people and help them get their stories I mean, out i mean it it opens a discussion um, and hopefully you find a way to turn it into a positive discussion. I think that's really the only way that you can do it. Um, it's it's a lot to agree to have a movie made about your life. And I don't have to do that. I can say no. Mm. Um, so ultimately, I have that that control. Um, but But think of the good that you can do and the positive impact that you can have, even if it's done poorly through discussion, mm-hmm. you know, through through laughing at it. The ability to laugh at yourself and at the process and even the amount that I've learned already through the process, I think that there's no doubt that it, we can we can call it a positive experience even before it happens and how I know how it turns out. It'll somehow I'll make it that. Yeah. Are you confident as you learn more and more of the process that you and the kids will be able to maintain the identities and the character that you have because you're, you know, it's it's a whirlwind that's just, just starting. It is. And, of, of course, our characters have changed a lot, too, from the book to now. Oh, of course. Especially the kids who have grown yeah. up so much. Um, but they're still very identifiable. We all have very distinct personalities and know ourselves and one another very well. And I can't see any way that it would serve a studio well to portray us dramatically differently. Oh, sure. You know, I mean, there's a book out there, and especially if we're already in a TV space, I, I don't think that it would serve them well. So I think that they will probably maintain a, a pretty consistent personality. But I'm also asking, too, from what all five of you are going to be going through in the next couple of years. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. Um, 
we'll just have to wait and see how all that how all that plays out. And, you know, if the kids join with the television series, certainly at least some of them will be. And you know how that affects your life, especially, you know, again, the youngest as an 11-year-old. It's there's a lot of pressure. You know, I've watched them with pressure already. We've interviewed with a lot of major talk show hosts and they put a lot of pressure on one another. You know how siblings are. You of screw this up, I'm gonna kill you. Right, right. You know? And and Don't you make th- me look bad. Right. Little right. brother. I can't yeah. believe you said that. What were you thinking? You know, as if they weren't already under enough pressure talking right. to these people, you know. So um they're all high performers. So you worry as they put themselves under that pressure. Um, but you also know like that's what's necessary to achieve something great. So And I almost wonder if there's I guess I do wonder if there's kind of the irony that everything that you've already been through together is going to make them, you know, oh, Hollywood, this is nothing, you know. Oh, it's so true. Oh, yeah, yeah. All the time that we're like, well, you know, that's no big deal. Um, Where I think that families who had been through less together or who didn't know one another communicate as well as we do um, would have a lot harder time you know, putting all this together and sticking through it. But, and it's a lot of, there are a lot of things that we use, moments that we use to ground ourselves and one another that just sort of like, yeah, obviously you can handle this. For instance. that. Um, Well, I mean, it's just, just the whole concept of building the house. That it's like, once you do that, once you wake up day after day, surrounded by this thing that's so much bigger than you, Mm -hmm. but you created like, how can anything feel big again? How can it feel too big? You know, it literally is a bit of an invincible feeling of anything that I try, if I set my mind to it and I want it, I can find a way to make it happen. And we all very strongly feel that way. So then it's just the decision factor of, is that really what I want? It's not, um, could I be president? Is that really what I want? Because, mm-hmm. you know, if it is, obviously I could, you know, yeah, and my yeah. kids feel that way very strongly. Um, and the same with the reality show. It's not, a, oh, could we have a show or how hard should we try? It's like, obviously we can do this. Mm-hmm. Now, which one of us, which, which ones of us want to, or how should we pair it, you know, pair the kids together or pair them with me? So, yeah, it's a, it's a different way of looking at the world that we certainly were nowhere near before we built a house. Or expected to while you were building a house. Right. And it took it took a time. Um, people often think, you know, well, what was it like the day you moved in, the day you finished? And I wish that I could say it was like a party. It was like a celebration. It doesn't happen that way. I mean, real life is these roller coasters. And it takes a lot longer when you've been that that broken and accomplished something. Sure, it was something big that we did, but it was hard. It was exhausting. It was brutal work. And just the physical recovery time from that kind of work, it takes a toll, as well as the, the social recovery time, because you're locked away from the world for all of that time. You don't have friends. You don't go out to dinner. Um, so, you know, it was it was months of recovery. And then we experienced a family tragedy the day we moved in um, that took us on another, you know, really difficult road as a family. So, you know, it's it was real life. Mm-hmm. It was real life. And there wasn't that hurrah moment that I bet there will be in a film. That's true, right? <laughs> well, how and could you not. Well, and, and yeah. then again, another little piece of irony is that that perception that you're talking about comes from a lot of reality shows oh, that have been on TV right. in and the past 15 yeah, years. We want it wrapped up all nice and neat. Mm-hmm. Um, and a renovation show looks far simpler than obviously than that is. Right. And, and it's always professionals. And, you know, they just like, oh, yeah, you did the same thing I saw on HGTV. Well, <laughs> kind of, yeah, <laughs> not really. <laughs> For some reason, mine didn't look that way. But yeah. they picture it when you end it. It's like, uh, you know, you bring your parents down and it's like the old extreme makeover show where they right. have a truck in front of it. and They pull it aside yeah. and <laughs> everyone goes crazy and it's a big party and then you're great. But that's not that, that's, that's not reality. That's not reality. But, you know, we find a point and and that's what I looked for in trying to end, you know, the book, too, and trying to end Rise. Like, you have to find a point of triumph mm-hmm. to end it because you need that. Um, we need that as as story consumers. We need that as storytellers. And, you know, so I took it just a bit beyond, okay, we finished the house and we moved in. And now the kids are amazing and brave and fearless. 
but they weren't that way the very day we moved in. You know, we weren't that all all of those things didn't happen instantly, but they do happen. So I want to change the topic a little bit and it'll be a little meta, but it'll let you talk about something else for okay. a change. I believe, I mean, since at least since I've started uh, hosting these, you are the first guest we've had on this podcast who has a podcast. Oh, really? So how have you seen the continued growth in podcasts? How have you seen that impact the world of literature and, and books? And how do you think it kind of fits into the bigger puzzle going forward? Oh, gosh. You know, I am probably the worst person to try to evaluate this because I'm a podcast fanatic. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that anyone else consumes on the level that I do. Um, So to me, it's, you know, extremely important. And I love to see um, my publisher, St. Martin's, but Macmillan did my audio book. And they had invited me to do the podcast, Raise My Roof, which is motivational. Mm -hmm. And it was a space that they wanted to have more and more of their authors occupy to develop that platform. So I think that it's enormously important. And it gives, you know, authors as well as readers a place to um, meet the people who are telling the stories and, you know, to see this storytelling in sort of a nugget you know, uh, while you're while you're working out or while you're driving somewhere. Um, so in, in my opinion, it's enormously important. And I love to see it getting more and more popular. And two, it gives, again, getting kind of made of what we're doing right here, but it gives you the opportunity to tell your story as a conversation and not a soundbite. Right. And to show how it affects so many different aspects of your life. How, you know, when, when you're writing a book, you're choosing which bits and pieces, of course, will fit into it. It's certainly not your entire story. And you're relating them very specifically to the things that are happening during that time frame. And, but when you're, you're talking with another person, just having a conversation, you know, and something that's happening in their life relates to something that you did mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different way to, you know, relate across time and space and to see the ways that things affect. So I think it's absolutely fantastic. I almost broke fortunate. my house once trying to replace a toilet, so we're not going to be able to have that conversation. <laughs> uh, what's the thing, because part of the reasons that we started expanding the uh, podcast with the library system is to give people a wider range of stories and you know backgrounds and things that they, they might relate to. Sure. What, again, it may be tough to pick one since you're a huge fan of podcasts, but... Can you remember one specific topic or one broadcast or one podcast or one episode with a certain person that that interested you in a direction you never thought you'd be interested? Yeah. Um, and this was really, of course, the first thing I listened to, which brought so many people in, was Radiolab. Mm-hmm. I loved the way they approached so many things, but I was already so interested in most of those topics that none of that was surprising. Um, there was a podcast that when it started, it was about seven minutes long. It was this really short thing, and then it grew, and it's 99% Invisible with Roman mm-hmm. Mars. So yeah. now it's a big thing. Um, but when I started listening to it, he was, like, you know, just, like, recording it in his bedroom sort of thing. And, you know, it was about these architectural spaces. And that was something I had never thought about. And, I mean, that's ironic because I'm building a house. But he was talking about, you know, public spaces Mm -hmm. in a way that I had never thought of or thought that I could listen to for 30 minutes and find fascinating. Like, he'll talk about highways, you know, or or non-spaces, you know, open spaces or signs and make it and somehow make that interesting. And that's something. Yeah. And that's something I love about the format is that it's not a polished product before you can consume it like a book would be, like a TV show or a movie would be, you know, people are just putting it out there. And so even if you get into it later, you can kind of go back and watch and see how it's gestated and how it's... Right. And right. have you found that with your own? Oh, sure. Sure. And I've only recorded like, I think, 11 podcasts. So mm-hmm. I'm still a baby at this. Mm-hmm. And it was never like a huge goal I had. I was sort of just thrown into it of, here, we want you to do this. And I was like, oh, okay, I like podcasts. Sure. Um, and I found that I had never listened to them with the idea of hosting. So I was thrown into it as this extreme newbie, but I also went into that very comfortably going, so what? I liked listening to that. I liked listening to it where I could tell, yeah, they're still trying to figure this out. Um, so that was okay. It's a very comfortable space to hang out in where you don't have to feel like, uh, you know, I narrated my own audiobook too. Completely different feeling. You mm-hmm. feel like you have to be very precise and everything should be perfect and it's this polished, produced piece. Yeah, it's not like that with a podcast. No, not at all. And I'm just the opposite of you. 
I specifically got interested in podcasts and jumped on this opportunity because hearing what people, particularly with comedic backgrounds, were able to to draw out of people in conversations just right. with their with your whether it's Mark Marin or Chris Hardwick or or some of these others where uh, it just it seems like that much more relaxed of a conversation because there's plenty of laughs in it. There's plenty, you know, they're generally, even if there's some very intense stories and very, very personal moments, it's, it's mixed in with levity and and everything else. So yeah, it's real people. Yeah. Yeah. So you have that real comfortable space and no filter. Yeah. Hashtag no filter. (laughs) (laughs) Have you now? Okay. You said you weren't much of a television consumer. No. Um, Were you already into Social media, new media. I mean, obviously, if you're listening, if you're big in a podcast, you're online a lot. But is that something that there, there's been a curve for you on in recent years, or is that something that you were you an early adopter? Um, well, of course, I was a computer programmer for 16 years developing ah. software systems, so a bit of a geek. There you go. Um, so definitely like social media. Twitter being a favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, I spend arguably too much time on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I do too. It's all right. <laughs> Though it may not be the best platform, you know, for everyone, certainly. Um, I like the global appeal of it. You know, 75% of the people on Twitter are not in the U.S. Right. So the conversations are so much different than what you would have on Facebook, where it's actually more people that you know and are, are from a similar socioeconomic background, that sort of thing. Um, so I enjoy that a lot. I have uh, over a quarter of a million followers on Twitter, and I, I I spend time there. I also do Facebook, and I've tried to leap into doing Facebook Lives and video. Mm-hmm. That's a harder thing for me to feel comfortable doing. Yeah. So I'm trying to get get more into that. But I, I love social media. It's incredible. The friendships, like I've met people in person repeatedly from from Twitter. Mm-hmm. You know that I first met there, and the friendships that you can develop in a you know a few characters. Well, I don't want to brag, but I broke two thousand followers this a few weeks ago. Yeah, so I'm coming for you. Yeah. Two thousand is the number on Twitter because once you really? get over that, it's easier to gain followers. Really. It cha- your ratio changes then. Yeah. I was trying to be self-deprecating. So okay, no. well then, good for me, I guess. Good for you. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think? Do you think this is a this is a point of a lot of debate all the time? And I don't want to get too academic about it, but social media expands the world, but also isolates people because you can craft it so you're only surrounded by voices that are like yours, by Certainly. by people who you relate to the most. How do you think, you know, how how do you think we get more people to approach it the way that you approach it? In that, you know, the curiosity and the wonder of this international conversation and seeing all pieces instead of just, well, this is a quicker way for me to get my own opinions reinforced fast. And I, I understand the debate 100 percent. And it's so true. But I think that it's it's human nature mm-hmm. uh, for so many of us. And I think it just depends on your personality. And before social media was around, it was exactly the same. We were surrounding ourselves with a, a junior league group or, you know, finding a, a smoking club or a quilting club. We were still categorizing ourselves in these groups that we felt comfortable in. And then there were other people who weren't, who were reaching out, who were traveling, who were talking to all different sorts of people. So I think that our, our natural personality is going to show through in how we approach that. Um, to change and expand that is all about education and mm-hmm. the way that you know we're taught at a young age how to interact with other people and how we're taught to accept other people and to be curious about differences. Uh, for example, I got into a, a very lengthy discussion with someone who had a very different viewpoint with me on Twitter about the earth being flat. They were a flat earther. And I immediately went, well, how does that work? You know, like explain this. Right. How do you come to that conclusion? Right. And and like, so tell me about the stars and the moon. Like, what are they to you? You know, not in any, you know. No, genuine curiosity. I just really want to know. Um, And it became an impossible discussion to continue because of the people who would jump in. Because, of course, Twitter being a public conversation you know, any of my 250,000 followers could leap in, and they did. Yeah. And some of, most of them in a very negative way, you know, idiot, you know, name-calling and just silliness. I was like, oh, I'm just genuinely curious. How does somebody come to this conclusion? And what are they using as supporting facts? And how do they see the world? You know, and as a storyteller, that's the first thing I'm thinking is, how do you see the world? Um, so maybe that's the answer. More storytelling and more reading. And more curiosity. Yeah. And, I, you know, that's, that is my, my one solution for education in the school system is curiosity. 
I don't think that we need to focus so much anymore on teaching the academics. You know, the school system was created so that everybody could have access to a math book and someone who knew how to solve the problems. Mm -hmm. You've got that now on YouTube. You no longer need a human to do that. Um, You can learn absolutely anything, including how to build a house by watching YouTube. Mm -hmm. So the only thing you need is curiosity. Now you can do anything. So if we can just focus, I mean, obviously the schools are put in place to try to teach these other things, um, and that's fine. That should be part of it. But if you teach that one thing, you succeed for the rest of that person's life. Mm-hmm. And, of course, then our schools have become such an interesting place because you have all these fights over a curriculum, but then you also have these very dedicated teachers who are basically raising a lot of these right. kids that right. come from broken homes. And so, yeah, it's a... It's an, I, Everything, nothing's I don't have the full easy. solution. Right, right. We just have that one thing. If we can teach that now, how do we implement that and how do we address all these other things? Thank goodness there are smarter people than me and more qualified people than me to figure that out. Um, but I'd love to see a, a, a reworking and a refocus just to teach that. Curiosity in, in the curriculum somewhere. That's it. Did you have a lot during your own education? Did you have a lot of music or art outlets or anything like that? Because that's always an area you hear about. Yeah, I had some. Now, growing up in in Wisconsin, it was a different academic atmosphere than Mm -hmm. in Arkansas. Um, I honestly just feel like the idea that intellect was treated well rather than in some school environments, it's that being made fun of if Mm -hmm. you're the smart kid. Um, Just the idea that being smart was a positive thing. Um, made a huge difference in the way that I looked at things and that reading was such a big deal. Um, We were so proud of the big library we had in our small town. Uh, And a lot of that that goes to my parents, too, who focused on reading. And, I mean, reading is fun was a mission for me when I was growing up in the summers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was getting that thing filled up. And I wasn't going to be one of these kids that cheated and read, you know, 60 short Dr. Seuss books, right? right? I'm right. reading real. <laughs> Go for the thick ones. Yeah, I'm going for real <laughs> books. It's, it's going to count for something, right? And, yeah. but, but I do think you're talking about something that's a bigger trend, and Arkansas is part of it, but by no means uh, the center of it, where intelligence is kind of getting pushed down a little right. bit in, the, in favor of uh, emotion, yeah. which is... <laughs> again, brings it back to where you found success, but in a, you know, I mean, in a different, I'm not making a direct comparison there, but, right. but uh, you know, I, I guess, how do you think, how do you pursue that balance between intellectual curiosity and truth to self and to emotions? Well, I don't know how you find the balance. I think the way that Or how do you start, try? I think yeah. the way that we start showing how to do that or, or valuing that is by television. This is where everybody is consuming. And you look at the way that the media has been able to change perceptions about um, the LGBT community, you know, the way that they have been able to change perceptions dramatically. I think that that is the answer that we have. And this is one reason I've never, you know, been really into television is you have a large number of shows that people are consuming that are really dumb and that are, you know, elevating ignorance and that Mm -hmm. are, you know, the number of people I talk to who say, I have never read a book in my life on purpose. Uh, That's not okay, nor is it something to brag about. Right. You know, even if it wasn't your livelihood. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. Just because um, it shows a lack of curiosity and it shows a lack of interest in other people's viewpoints um, in other parts of the world. It's so limiting. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, where do how do we find the balance between that? We certainly have to evaluate emotion, um, but the more that we can understand and see other people and other people's points of view, I think the more we find that balance because we immediately sort of auto balance it in ourselves, where we can recognize, well, I feel this way, but not everybody does. So as we wind down, I'll just kind of give you the floor for a minute, and if if you and I'm sure this is something no pressure, that you right? well, I'm, I'm not, but I'm sure there's something you talk about in your motivational speaking and everything, but if 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 I'm listening to this podcast mm-hmm. and I've been through some trauma, mm-hmm. whatever it is, how do I start? What's the first step that I take toward gaining control of it and you know empowering myself to to not let it rule my life anymore? 
You know, for me, the first step was to ignore all of the advice I read on the internet, which was the small stuff. It said, you know, just start small. Don't don't overtax yourself. Just get out of bed today. Um, make it your goal to make a pot of coffee. Make it your goal to put on your socks. And at the end of the day, I had a pot of coffee and some warm socks. You know, you're going to achieve whatever goal you set up for yourself. So set it crazy big. You know, look at it as an enormous leap. And go out there and absolute determination, push for something big. Push for something that changes your perception of yourself. And, you know, for me, it was building a house. For other people, maybe that's running a marathon. Maybe it's climbing a mountain. Maybe it's starting a business. Set that big goal and don't waver from it. If you try and fail, then try a different way. Don't change the goal. Um, so that that's what it was for me. And to know that if I, as you know, a, a small computer programmer and author can build a house, then anyone can reach their dream. There's the button we'll end it on right there. Thank you for joining us. This is one of a number of podcasts that you can find on the Central Arkansas Library System website, which is cals.org, C-A-L-S uh, dot org. And how do they find your podcast? I am at Raise My Roof on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, everywhere. Okay. And uh, and any other outlets you want to plug, your website? My your... website is carabrickens.com. You can get to all of my social from there. There you go. That's the way to do it. Okay. Well, thanks for being here. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time on Primary Sources. Primary Sources is a production of the Central Arkansas Library System and its Arkansas History Department, the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies. For more information, visit cows.org and butlercenter.org. Our producer is Glenn Whaley, and our production manager is Brett Ratliff. Our executive producers are Leanne Blackwell-Hoskin and David Strickland. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.